You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And I would like at this time to ask you to stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word from John chapter 14. We will read together verses 21 through 24 and then pray and begin. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him. And manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home. With him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord our God, I thank you for this time that you've brought us to now. Father, I thank you for everyone that is here. Oh God, I I give thanks to you that when we come together in this way to worship you, that we're able to build off of one another and to be encouraged. Oh God, we're to sing and make melody in our hearts to one another and to you. Father, I ask that during this time it would not be a merely horizontal communication that you would visit us with your spirit and power. Father, I'm not asking you to do something that you have not promised to do. The Lord Jesus Christ, even in our text, O oh God, promises to manifest himself to his people. That's what we're asking for now. God, I pray that you would guard me from error and misspeaking. Father, give me a sense of urgency and conviction. And even as well, compassion. Father, I ask that in all of this, you would get all of the glory. That you would continue the work of building your people. As your word goes forth. Oh God, I thank you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I do have a couple of introductory questions for you before we start working through our text. I suppose before we do that as well, I'll just recap our last week's thoughts. The sermon was no longer orphans. And we looked at the text here in John 14 where Jesus tells His disciples He'll not leave them as orphans. If you'll remember, we considered what it means to be left as an orphan in the world. To not have a sense of God's God's provision for you and meeting your needs. To not have a sense of God and His, 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 His discipline and His structured hand in your life, to not have a sense of God as a Father who genuinely loves you and has affection for you, and then 
Lastly, we saw the division from the people of God and not having a family you belong to in that sense. And all of those things we saw to be glorious truths in the life of Christians. That we know God as our provider. We know the Father as one who disciplines and corrects us. We know God as our Father who loves us and has affection for us. And we know the love we share with one another as His people. And that was the, that's an overview of our thoughts last week, but keep those things in mind. You remember Jesus, He's dealing with them in this way because He's about to leave. Keep that context firmly in your mind. He's ministering to His own disciples because He's about to leave. That's going to come up again in the text today. And for the next number of months, I imagine, it will continue coming up. And we pick up today in verses 21 through 24. And just at the beginning before this, you know, Christmas is fast approaching. And I have not yet decided if our Christmas service is going to be the next verses in John's gospel or if we will look specially at this reality of Christ coming into the world at the season of Advent. But I do know this, that today there is as much relevance to the truth we're looking at today as any other text in the Bible concerning Christmas. You know, we sang more than one song today making reference to Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. In the text today, Jesus is saying, I will manifest myself to you. I'll be with you. God is saying, I'll be with you, Emmanuel. And so these truths are, are intimately connected to Christ and His coming into the world and what He's promised to do for us now that He has gone back to the Father. And so I ask this question. What is the most needed thing in the church today? Not just this church, but across the world. Every place where people gather to worship God, what do you think is most needed today? For that matter, what's the most needed thing in the world today? Not just in the church, but in the world in general. What is most needed? And more intimately, what is most needed in your life? Today, now, here, as you're gathered together with other believers, what is your greatest need? I want to call your attention just briefly to the front of the bulletin, a quote by George Mueller, where he says, The primary business I must attend to every day is to fellowship with the Lord. The first concern is not how much I might serve the Lord, but how my inner man might be nourished. How my soul is going to be fed by an experience of the presence of God. That was, and this was a busy man. If you go and read his biography and see all that he was doing, serving God every day, and, and so much of his life poured into ministry, and yet, he says it's a greater priority that I fellowship with God, that I know God's presence in my life. And I'm asking this question because there are many people who live their entire lives with from one degree of discouragement and depression to the next, and they're constantly despairing, full of heartache. This is true of people in the world. You realize the, the suicide rates are going continuously up. There's constantly strife and anxiety and hopelessness in the world. And even very many Christian people seem to live their lives without a real sense of hope and joy 
And I know we say we have hope. We read the truth of God's word and we hope towards those things. But so much of the time, our joy, our hope is not a result of the felt presence of God in our lives. If I ask you this question, if I say, when is the last time you had a real sense of God's presence with you? And, and not just believing we walk by faith and not by sight, not just, OK, I know that's supposed to be true, but your own experience tells you God is with me right now. I, I believe this is an incredible thing that is so overlooked and we'll say we don't want to presume upon God or expect more of God than he's actually promised he's going to do for us. And yet our text exists. We've got to take this serious. You see, from Christian people to non-Christians, many people live with no real degree of hope or excitement. And you see, there is a busyness that we involve ourselves in. We busy ourselves and we're so busy. And then even when we're not busy, we make ourselves busy. Why? Because if you sit around in the quiet for too long, being still before God, you can't live with it. You can't live with it. And over and over, you see Jesus in the Gospels going away to be alone with his father. He had a, a yearning desire for the presence of God. God had a desire for the presence of God. I wonder if there's not a greater need in our lives to slow down and put a greater value and priority on expecting great things from God. Now, this may sound odd to you, and there are a lot of people we're going to talk about some of them. There are a lot of people who will tell you to claim things from God that he never promised. But I'm telling you, we ought to be expectant concerning the things he has promised. And not wash them away and disregard them and live as if this is all that it is. And I should never desire God to do more in my life. Well, what do we say to these things? John 14, beginning in verse 21, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him. And manifest myself to him. First thing we see in our text today is a repeated theme from our recent studies in John's gospel. You see, again, we're looking at where Jesus is saying he's giving an indicative statement. You remember this indicative and indicative is something that is objectively true. It's going to be true. It's not it's not so much a command as it is a reality. It's going to be true. And if it's not true about you. There's cause for concern. Jesus is saying that the Christian's obedience is, is their obedience. Your obedience to Christ and to his word is a, an evidence, a reflection of your love for him. Look with me just for a moment at James chapter one. Jesus is saying, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And so when you see someone loving God's word, loving Christ's word and seeking to live according to it, Jesus is saying, you're seeing someone who loves me. But it's so important that we get this right. From James. <clears throat> chapter one, begin reading with me at verse 19. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, 
slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Several things exist in that text, but the primary communication is this. If you say, I, I, I love him, this is a common theme in John's gospel at this point. If you say you love him and you don't do what he says, you're not telling the truth. Jesus reiterates this. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. As we look in this text, I hope you'll see something. The primary emphasis. What's Jesus' primary emphasis? What's the most repeated idea in our verses today? Verses 21 through 24. What does Jesus bring up the most in these verses? You can look at it with me, and I, I trust you'll find this to be true. He's dealing with your love for Him, or God's love for you, or His love for you. It's all about love. And I think it's very important that we see that's the emphasis. Because if you look at Jesus saying to you, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, if you focus on that and your love for Him is not what's producing that, you've missed it. You're not really entering into what He's talking about. If we rush on to our own works and keeping commandments without seeing this emphasis on love, you know what we're going to be left with? Dead orthodoxy. Cold religion with no real motivation and furthermore, without any power to keep those commandments. You're going to wake up to find yourself to be a twofold child of hell. You're going to go on to judgment under God's wrath as one who knew what was right. But you never were moved by the love of Christ. You never had that great reality at work in you. Jesus is telling us that obedience to him is a great evidence that we love him. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them loves me. But we also have to admit that we don't always obey him. Do we? we don't obey him as we ought to obey him. If you have any integrity whatsoever in any amount of thinking power in your head, you know that you fail Him constantly, regularly. And so I ask, what should the Christian do when they fail to obey Christ? Jesus says, whoever has My commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves Me. What do you do with that whenever you've disobeyed Christ? How do you respond? How do you react? Does it cause you to be cast into hopelessness and despair? Jesus says, if I love Him, I'm going to do these commandments. <coughs> and yet I'm not doing them. I must be lost. I must not be a Christian at all. And other people say, ah, we're all sinners. We're all going to fall short. We're all going to fail. Don't be so bothered by that. What's the appropriate response to these things? Well, let me suggest something to you. That your disobedience to Christ ought to every time drive you to ask this question. And I'm getting this straight from our text. 
When I've failed, when I've sinned, here's the question. Why am I not loving Him? That's, that's the reality. When you sin, it always comes down to not loving the Lord. That's the first greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. If you're not doing that, sin is going to follow. And so when we find ourselves disobedient to God, let's ask the question, why aren't we loving Him? What lie from the devil am I believing whenever I reach a point where I find myself in sin? There's a temptation and it's quenching my love for the Savior. Some things that we forget. What do we forget whenever we're not loving Him? You forget that this is the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. You've forgotten that He left the courts of heaven to rescue and redeem you. You've forgotten about the perfect life of this Savior as He lived upon the earth. You've forgotten His compassion for sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. You've forgotten those things in the moment of disobedience to Christ. You've forgotten His resurrection from the dead, His promise to never leave you or forsake you. You've forgotten that now, currently, He ever lives to intercede for you. But here's the point. It is, unequivocally, it is love for Christ that ought to drive our obedience. And I'll tell you, whenever you realize your disobedience is always the result of lovelessness for Christ. You're not loving Him. That's always the, the reason why we disobey. If we realize that, if we see that, then our focus is going to be driven to Him instead of ourselves. That's what I'm telling you. It's not that we would be gazing at our own navels, but driven to gaze on Him. And that, that's the only thing that's going to... You're not going to grow in your knowledge and love for Him by staring at yourself. It's by looking there, seeing Him, seeing what He's done. And that produces a desire, a burden for obedience. Your love for Him is reignited. And when that happens, obedience will follow. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. That's one of the greatest wonders in the universe, isn't it? Something else. Again, John's being repetitive, so I'm going to be repetitive, but it's wonderful. Don't let this wonder escape you today. You're reading, Jesus says, the one who loves him will be loved by his Father. We are promised by the Lord that we will be loved by God the Father. Now let me ask you, what is it that connects you with the love of God the Father. Look in this text. What is it that allows you to have a connection to God as Father? Jesus says, whoever loves me will be loved by my Father. There is an intimate connection and experience of the Father's love related to our love for Jesus Christ. This means that if you're looking for the Father's love apart from Jesus Christ, you're not going to find it. Jesus is communicating. It is our connection to Him. And these things seem very elementary. As believers, we know that's true. And yet, how often do you feel when you look at your life, you face difficulties, almost as though God, I don't know that He loves me. I want to know that God loves me. And I'm telling you, if you want to know that, you're going to find it in His Son. We studied together several months ago from John 5, verses 22 through 23, where Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. 
that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So here's the truth. If you want to be delivered from discouragement and despair and a sense that God doesn't love you, if you desire to have a a freedom from the guilt of your own sin, your sin, you want delivered from it. If you want to know the love of Christ and you want to experience the love of the Father, this is what it's telling you. Honor His Son. Love His Son. And He says, furthermore, and I will love Him and manifest Myself to Him. Now this is an interesting thought. Jesus says, whoever has My commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves Me. And he who loves Me will be loved by My Father and I will love him. How easy would it be for us to take that and twist it to mean something it doesn't? You can read whoever has my commandments and keeps them. And you see Jesus saying, I will love him. People will think, well, the way that I get to experience the love of Christ is by keeping his commandments. It's by having his word. It's what I do. Or even it's my love for him that makes him love me. Do you see how dangerous it would be? How easy it would be to see that? He's not saying that our love for him or our obedience to him produces his love for us. We know from 1 John 4.19, we love. Why? Because He first loved us. It is His love that is first. So in light of that, what is Jesus saying here? What He's saying is that not only has He loved us first, not only has Jesus demonstrated to you the Father's love in His death on the cross, but He goes even further. And telling us that His love will continue on. His love is the starting place and it's going on from here. He's told us, and that's such an an incredible truth, that there's this love that we have for Him because of His love for us. And the Father loves us and He's saying, yeah, I'm going to keep loving you. And that love He's going to continue to have for His own is going to produce something. There's going to be a result to Him continuing to love you. Jesus has not only loved us once and saved us, but He promises that everyone who's united to God by Him, His love is going on. It's not ending. And the next thing we see is what is the result of that ongoing love? Jesus says, I loved you when I came into the world. I loved you when I died on the cross. I'm going to keep on loving you. What's that going to look like? He says He will manifest Himself to the one He loves. He will manifest Himself To the one he loves. I've got a question. What does it mean that he will manifest himself to us? It's very important that we pay close attention to this. I'm arguing this is the need of the world of the hour right now. That Jesus would be manifest. That he would be with us and we would know it. With absolute certainty the Lord is with us. That's what we need. Well, John 14 verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now, surely we can understand and appreciate this question. Don't you find it encouraging when you're reading your scriptures and you have a question or a thought and Jesus' disciples have the same question? They want to know too, just like we want to know. What is it? What do you mean you're going to manifest yourself to the world? Well, like... Judas, not Iscariot here. I'm just going to treat that word, that phrase, not Iscariot, like his last name, so we're not confused. Seems to be John's intent here. Judas, not Iscariot, this disciple, he asks, he wants to know, 
What do you mean by that? And I, I, I contend we saw this previously in Thomas, that it's far better to take our questions and our concerns to the Lord than it is to assume that you already know when you don't. To assume that I already know is a dangerous game to play. You know, there are many religious people today that have come up with their own assumptions. They hear Jesus saying, I'll manifest myself. And they have expectations of what that means for Jesus to manifest himself. And it seems that most of them are demanding experiences from God that have nothing to do with what's revealed in the Bible, completely disconnected from this book. And yet they say we're looking for an experience with God. Well, what does he say? here? What does it mean? However wrong those people, the fanatics that we might call them hyper charismatic, however wrong they may be, there is certainly a mysterious element to Jesus promise in these verses. There's something mysterious, not mysticism, but there is something of a mystery here. It's something subjective, something that's unseen. Now, why do I say that? Because you see, Judas, not Iscariot here is alluding back, I believe, to verse 17. He says, Jesus has told them, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now think on this. Judas, not Iscariot, is picking up on this, that Jesus is saying the thing I'm promising you, the world not going to know what's going on. That means it's in, invisible. There's something subjective being promised here, something that we experience individually and personally. And Judas, not Iscariot, wants to know, what is that? How is it that we're going to have you manifest to us in the world? How can you be to be manifest? What does it mean for something to be manifest, to be publicly set forth, visible, evident? How is that going to be true if you're not able to be seen by the rest of the world? That's what he wants to know. And this points us to the fact that there is a subjective and personal aspect to what Jesus is promising. You see, we ourselves must desire an experiential and spiritual manifestation of Christ to us. It's not enough for you to ride the religious coattails of someone else who's experienced Christ. You must. That's part of what's implied here. You're going to be having an experience where Christ is manifested to you. You remember the experience, the woman at the well in John 4, after she's had her encounter with Jesus, she runs back to town and tells everybody about the one who told her all she ever did. And they're amazed at what she's saying and what she's telling them about Jesus as the Messiah. Can this be Messiah? And then Jesus ends up having a revival meeting there in Samaria for a few days. And after he spent some time with them, we read in John 4, verse 42, these people said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What a glorious thing. We know. Yeah, you told us and we thought, man, we think she's right. But now no, we have confidence. There's a personal experience where all of a sudden you don't just believe Jesus is the Christ because I told you. But he tells you. And he might use my mouth to tell you. But he's the one communicating to you. It's a personal experience with Him, with the, the, the Savior. He meets with you in that way. And so I ask, 
in light of the dangers that are present within those who are looking for a manifestation of Jesus. What is his answer to this? What is this personal and subjective experience of Christ look like? If someone tells you that they sat with Jesus and had coffee with him this morning or he talked to them while they were in the shower and you think you're crazy. Well, what makes your subjective experience more valid than theirs? That's what I'm driving at. Well, Jesus answers in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is an express clear answer to the question. What does it mean that Jesus promises to manifest himself? The first thing you notice is that Jesus refuses to depart from his primary focus. I told you the focus in this section is not primarily commandments and evidence. It's love. And if the commandments keeping and the the evidence is not there, it means there's no love there. Jesus continues that theme. If anyone loves me, that's what he draws back to. He's telling he's telling this Judas, not Iscariot. This has to do with loving me. That's what this manifestation has to do with. And it would be very easy for us to read that part about keeping his word and to assume this. I've heard a lot of people, a lot of solid reformed brothers that I love dearly that will say things like this. If you want to experience this manifestation of Christ, what that means is that you understand and read about Jesus in his word. And I think they're on the right track, but they're missing something. They're missing something vital. If you have your entire Bible memorized from cover to cover and you can tell me this is what it's saying about Jesus here and here and here. And there are scholars who can do that with no love for the Christ they see. Do you love him? Not just do you know what is true of him, but do you love him? That's what he's saying. He says to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. There must be. An overwhelming and an experiential experience in the soul of a love for Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that, your religion is dead. And so are you. If, if your knowledge of the word of God does not drive you to love Jesus. Then you're not understanding. You're not understanding. That's the reason it's there. Every line is for that end. Not just to know truth, but to love him who is truth. Growing in your love for him. I believe our primary hermeneutical tool, which is just a fancy word for how we interpret the Bible, our primary hermeneutical tool for how we understand the Scriptures must always be this. What do these verses tell me about Jesus Christ and His love? And I don't care what section, New or Old Testament you're in, there is a relationship with that text and the love of Christ for you or it wouldn't be there. Now, it may take several verses for you to understand how that's telling you about Christ, but that is the driving emphasis. Everything, every law that condemns you and calls you guilty is pointing you to a Savior who came to redeem you from that guilt. Every part of this book is about Him. So Jesus, He continues that theme, if anyone loves Me. Well, then He goes on. The second thing we see in His answer is that there is an undeniable relationship between Christ manifesting Himself to us and His Word. Now I said they're headed in the right direction. Those who say if you want to know Christ, read your Bible. They're right. But there's there's an intention. Read it that you might know and love the one you're learning about. Not just It's not explicit. There are people who know truth but have no love. 
We must be dedicated to seeking out this promise by thrusting ourselves on these very scriptures that we have. We're going to go on in a later message. In the next chapter, John 15 and verse 7, Jesus says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see the similar thought? What is it to abide in Christ? To be experiencing His manifest presence. You're abiding in Christ. And Jesus says, if you're abiding in Me and My words are abiding in you, there's a connection. There's a special relationship between knowing and loving Him and having His Word abiding in you. Abiding in Christ and experiencing His presence can only happen through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in an individual and in a subjective and personal way, but it can never be separated from His Word. That's where those who look for an experience of God, a manifestation of Jesus, apart from His Word, that's where they go wrong. And that's why they find all sorts of devilish experiences as they do that. We move along to verse 24. Whoever does not love Me does not keep My words. There it is again. You see the connection between a love for Christ and a sense of His manifest presence in His words. And He says, And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent Me. In this last verse that we're looking at together, there are two things presented to you. There's a solemn warning. Whoever does not love Me does not keep My words. There's the warning. As well as a demonstration of the humility of Jesus Christ. Humility on display in His constant appeal back to the Father. The first thing though, the warning. This warning is severe. And I wonder, is there anybody here today who you examine your life and you find you're not keeping His words? Jesus says, whoever does not love me does not keep his words. I've told you, even as a Christian, when you're not when you're not obeying him, it's because you're not loving him. And then there's this reality that every lost person, the reason that they go on sinning is because they don't love Christ and their disobedience is revealing that. And in light of that, when you look at yourself, do you say, I'm not very obedient I don't really have an interest in Jesus Christ and His commandments. Sure, I don't want to go to hell when I die, but I'm not that worried about whether or not I sin. I'm more worried about whether I get caught. If that's you, if you're feeling that way, well, it seems to me that when the Scriptures speak of warnings, warnings, warning people who are not bearing good fruit, and telling the person who's not bearing good fruit that you're not really a Christian, that it's always presented in the negative. What do I mean by that? This is very, very important. Listen closely. If you see, you'll know them by their fruit. So a good tree produces good fruit. And if you have bad fruit, you're a bad tree. You'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. If you read that, this is what I'm saying. It's a negative thing. If God is not working in your life, it's an indication that you're lost. But let me warn you. That when we seek to develop assurance that we are saved, that we do know Christ by measuring good fruit, there is some assurance that comes from good fruit. But that can't be your primary assurance. Your assurance for God's love, as we're seeing, is through His Son and not through anything you do. But I say that at this point because this is a severe warning. If you're not keeping His words, 
you don't love Him, and none of these promises apply to you. That's what I'm saying to you. If you're under a weight of conviction when you hear that, that you're not saved, you're going to go to hell when you die if you're not keeping His words, not because you can save yourself, but because you don't love the Savior. You don't know Him. If that bothers you and it disturbs you inside, what do you think God would be calling for you to do right now? This very moment. Is the charge for you to leave today just utterly despairing? I said the problem in the world, the need in the world is that people would be helped from their despair and discouragement. And that happens through the manifest presence of Jesus Christ in their life. Taking them up, picking them up out of that miry clay and setting them on solid ground. His word is that solid ground. It's setting you on a promise that is fixed and certain. And by His Spirit, letting you know in your soul that promise is true for you. When you read Jesus saying, I will manifest Myself to you, is that what you're understanding Him to say to you? Well, I'm convinced some people think when I preach that I'm trying to convince as many people as possible that they're not really a true Christian. Well, that's not the aim at all. If that's true of you, well, yes. Yes, if you're lost and going to hell, I want you to know that. Even no matter how solid your profession may be of faith, I want you to know that and be confronted by Jesus. But let me share with you the real burden in one very real sense. The call and charge to everyone here, no matter how soundly saved you may be or how desperately damned you may be, either side, the charge is the same. And you know what it is? To love Christ. Now, how are you going to grow? How are you going to come to love Him? Have you ever heard the testimony of how Charles Haddon Spurgeon was converted? Charles Spurgeon. He grew up in a Christian home. A lot of Christian influence. Grandfather was a pastor. Mother prayed for him often. Family, good home. He was lost as a young person, a teenager. One day there's a snowstorm going on and he's driven into a Methodist church. Now, the the pastor couldn't even be there that day. He wasn't even there. So a layman gets up and fumbles through a sermonette he tries to deliver. And he reads from Isaiah. And Spurgeon heard for the first time, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. That's the message. That's what I'm telling you. The world needs to look unto Jesus, but we can't see Him unless He manifests Himself to us. And He does that in His Word. That's the need of the hour. That's your need. Whether you're a Christian or you're lost, look to Christ and let your love for Him be kindled into a burning flame that consumes all of your life. So that everything you do is measured by, is this pleasing to the One who died for me? That's what I'm telling you. That's what's needed. Jesus says, I will manifest Myself to you. Once again, I'll ask, as we saw this same truth last week, you begin to see themes that are so repeated, but what you need to realize is when something's repeated, one of the reasons I don't shy away from dealing with the same themes week by week is because one principle in these ancient ancient, uh, languages is repetition equals significance. It's important. So as these things are repeated, I trust God is wanting you to listen to them. Otherwise, He wouldn't have us here. This theme that's repeated is, what is the grounds for trusting such a promise? 
Can you trust Jesus when he tells you, I will manifest, I'll come to you. I'm going to let you know in a very personal way that I'm with you and that I love you and that that, that I am interested in your good. Can you believe that? And I ask that I'm not just throwing out that question. Listen to me. Whenever you don't feel that way, do you believe in your soul? Jesus has promised me something I can trust him for. I can believe him for. I tell you, sometimes we spend so much of our time afraid of presuming on God's grace that we don't trust his promises. I don't want to presume God. I don't know. I don't want to expect too much of God. Listen, Jesus promises. Cling to it. What's the grounds for that promise? He says, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Jesus grounds this promise of manifesting himself to you and to I. He grounds this promise. In his word, his word and by his spirit upon the authority of the father. You see, Jesus could have made this claim with no appeal to the father. Jesus could have told you, I'm coming to you and that's it. And it would have been trustworthy and it would have been true. And yet his humility shines through once again. Over and over. Why is Jesus always saying the will of the Father, him who sent me? Why? This humility is constantly, constantly interested in glorifying his father. And it also tells you something. Jesus here is not just giving his disciples some wishful thinking. Well, fellas, I'm going to do my best. Can't really say one way or another. But how important of a promise is this whenever Jesus has gone away and, and, and you're wondering, where's the love of God for me? He's saying the father. This is a guarantee, a promise from the father who sent me. God is speaking, not just a man. God is speaking to you. It's certain it's fixed. And you can have every assurance that it's true when he says it to you. Now, again, I started by asking, what is the greatest need in the world? This is the answer. That Jesus Christ would be manifested to us according to what's revealed in this book before us. That your gaze would be fixed on heaven and glory and God. And that you would know your sins are forgiven. That you'd know that God actually loves you. And that we all would be expectantly. I use that word expectantly. Do we expect things from God? Not with arrogance, not with presumption, but expecting our God to do what he said he's going to do. And abiding in his word. The title of the sermon is the hope of glory. I don't know what else to describe a manifestation of Jesus Christ than glory. The scripture says to us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God in Jesus and you and I need to see that glory. And so what is the hope of glory? The hope is that when Jesus says he's going to do this for us, that we look forward to it. We have a confident expectation of Jesus to do that which he has promised. Colossians 1.27, Paul says to them, 
God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the hope of glory, Christ in you. Now I ask again, and I can't tell you how convicting this is to me, to say, do I have a regular encounter with the living God according to His Word? And not settle for a lesser thing than that which He's promised. I expect great things from my God. And when I don't, I'm wrong. I'm wrong if I don't expect Him to do. We make God out to be a liar when we don't expect Him to do what He said He's going to do. You realize that? And if you're sitting there today and you're not a Christian and you hear God saying to you, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. You hear God saying, all who call upon my name, I'm going to save them for sure. And you say, oh, well, he won't save me. I don't expect him to do what he said he's going to do. Believing God. You know, I I think it was R.C. Sproul I heard one time say, it's one thing to believe in God and another thing entirely to believe God. I just want to know, do you believe in God? Of course you do. Everyone does at some level. Do you believe Him? Do you trust what He tells you? Well, my prayer is that if you don't, you would turn to Him by faith, realizing He is the only one you can trust. And He's made these promises and He's accomplished all of these things. And if there's one thing that should ring in your ears as you go out of this place, it is this. This one who made these promises, he's the only one to ever go sinlessly, perfectly through life to die and be raised from the dead to never die again. That means he's credible. He's more credible than anyone else because of that. Trust him today. And I pray that God, by his spirit, that Jesus would meet with us in this very way and that he's even been meeting with your soul as you listen to these things. And that as His Word goes forth, you hear Him rather than me. So with that, I will ask you now to bow with me and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I thank You for every single one of Your promises. Oh Father, do guard us from presumption, but guard us from doubt. Guard us from trusting ourselves and not trusting you. Our experiences lie to us and tell us things that aren't true of you. Oh God, I ask that you would be gracious and merciful today. That you would continue to hold us together in unity and fellowship. And that you would get all of the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.